You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Stephen from Trip of a Lifestyle. This is Lauren from Trip of a Lifestyle, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. My wife grew up in an immigrant family with little to spare. Each dollar was brutally earned through hard work and endurance. For her, growing up, there was nothing more important than a stable career, a reliable income stream. This career was won by attending college, applying to corporate America, and eventually, if lucky, proving your worth. Because of decades of success in both our careers, my wife and I have found ourselves relatively financially independent. Yet, for her, with her upbringing, Leaving a stable job is something she is just not ready to do. She was brought up thinking a prosperous job is indispensable. Well, my guests today say the exact opposite is true. According to them, your job, in fact, should be disposable. Do you agree? Are you looking to elevate your asset allocation, guard your portfolio against volatility? Equity Multiple can help. Invest in professionally managed commercial real estate starting with just $5,000. Establish passive income streams while experienced asset managers go to work on your behalf. Sign up at equitymultiple.com forward slash earn and receive an enhanced return on your first investment. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash earn. Lauren and Stephen are the creators of the Trip of a Lifestyle blog and platform, which delivers a unique take on personal finance and adventure that can help you get rich, work less, and travel whenever you want. Lauren and Stephen, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Lauren, I want to start with you. In a recent blog post, you discuss reading Lauren Weber's book, In Cheap We Trust. You say, and I'm going to quote you here, I used to look at economic crashes as scary, unpredictable events that I had no control over and no way to defend against. This book changed your feelings about that. Why? So part of the blog post, like right before that, I think I shared that I felt like I never really got the financial perspective in history class. You know, you learn about things like the Great Depression, but you don't really learn about the like nuts and bolts of what like everyday people were going through other than, you know, maybe the pictures that we saw in that it was a hard time. And so I think... For me, that book, the first half of it really focused on what Americans have done like historically, like what she does it in a way that's describing, like redefining what thrift or like 
what a saver looks like or what a, a cheapskate might look like over the years and how our relationship to like spending money changes depending on the economic times. And that sometimes it's good to be a saver and sometimes you're supposed to spend based on how the country is doing economically. But people love to spend money is kind of what she's gets at is like, no matter what the, the rallying cry is at the time, everyone wants to be spending money. So when it's approved by the government telling you, yeah, go spend money, it's good for the economy, people inadvertently get themselves in a lot of debt. And then when the crash comes, they're in a position that is overextended. And I didn't really have that perspective. I didn't really grasp that concept prior to reading the history over and over of what hurt average Americans was being in debt and not having a savings to fall back on in hard times. And so knowing that I am debt-free and have a savings kind of bolstered my feeling of, oh, I think that if I was in those times, it wouldn't be as big of an effect on me. It wouldn't be as out for the count as a lot of Americans were during that time period. And as someone who also came up on a relatively low income as a, in my childhood, I also was like looking for that stability. And so knowing that like, oh, I have achieved that also kind of felt good. Stephen, what I hear Lauren saying is this idea that when hard economic times hit, if you are not in debt, if you have some savings, maybe some investments, you're not in as much risk. So when she read this, it kind of made her feel better about her ability to tolerate world events. All of that kind of predicates on this idea that you don't have debt and that maybe you have a career or some stable income. Let's talk about you and Lauren kind of coming out of college. What were your career plans at that time? So coming out of college, I thought I was going to become a PhD research physicist and professor. And Lauren, what, what did you think you were going to be coming out of college? Well, my degree was in journalism, but you know, I had worked for the paper while in school. And I think my idea was like, whoever will give me a job <laughs> was going to be my next job. Like it wasn't really, you know, I knew I had a, a skill set and I had honed it in journalism school, but whoever needs a, a job to be done, I will do it. Like that was kind of my perspective. <laughs> I, I thought I had like a really clear path ahead of me. Um, and that involved basically like close to six more years of school after college. And I thought it was all pretty well laid out. That turned out not to be true. But yeah, that's kind of like where our mindset was. Probably kind of opposites, if you think about it. Steven, you said that turned out not to be true. What happened? I got admitted into a PhD program for particle physics. And I moved, we moved across the country to California, went to UC Irvine. And I was in that program for about nine months. And what I kind of realized over that time was the parts of what I was doing that I was enjoying the most was the part that you're supposed to hate, which is being a TA. You know, everyone's like, oh, I don't want to be a TA. This is stupid. I just want to get started on my research. I just want to focus on my coursework. I felt the opposite. I really loved being a TA. I like teaching. And like, I basically had like a lab class all to myself. I was like the primary instructor basically for a lab class. And it was really fun. So I kind of fell in love with teaching. At the same time, I had just come off of four years of doing like just straight up coursework. And so, you know, your first couple of years of, of PhD, you're doing more coursework. So a lot of my time was spent sitting in front of a laptop, 
or sitting in front of a textbook or just doing homework problem after homework problem after homework problem for hours. And I was not enjoying that that part as much as getting like burned out on it. So the teaching part was like novel to me. So I ended up applying for this other grad program back in Florida, which is where we're originally from. And the deal with that was if you would become a high school teacher in a STEM subject for at least one full year, full salary paid and everything, then they would give you free tuition on a master's degree in education. So I quit the PhD in physics and I went and and did that. So we moved back across the country, back to Florida, and I ended up being a high school teacher for two years. So Lauren, what I'm hearing is that you guys, in a sense, had a little bit of a tumultuous career voyage, right? So Stephen thinks he's going to do one thing, ends up doing another. You're not sure where you want to go. You're saying, well, where can I get a paycheck? What can become my next career opportunity? What were your finances like at that time? I mean, did you guys have debt? Were you able to start saving already? What were you doing with your financial lives? So I worked all through college. We both had scholarships for our undergrad. And so we graduated both debt-free. I had worked and paid my way through college and I had some savings from that because I was on my own and very like aware of that fact financially. And so I was very concerned about that, but I had worked in like food service. So I knew like worst case scenario, I could just go back to waiting tables make some money, worst case scenario, right? If I don't use my degree, I could at least have a paycheck. Like I wasn't concerned about that part of it. I kind of had a feeling that Steven was a little burned out because he was already talking about that senior year. Like, didn't you have a minor, right? And you were going to do another minor and you didn't because you were like, oh, this is too much work. And like, I'm over it. And I could have graduated already if I didn't have this minor. So like this conversation was already happening. And I was, yeah, I don't know about this PhD, but like, you know, this is your life. We're going to, we'll go, we'll see how it is. you can make that decision on your own. So that's what we did. Me being more flexible and not having a dream career or like a, you know, specific career goal made it a little easier. I was more flexible. I didn't really mind uprooting and moving. I mean, I got to experience the joy of living in California um, with perfect weather year round. It was a kind of crazy time for me, like just looking for jobs. I was applying to like any and everything, I was on Monster in, you know, Indeed and like all the job boards, like looking for stuff. My first job, I was in California. I was a secretary, but like I kept telling them how much I could, other things I could do. Like I can do photography. You guys have products. I can do product photography. You have a website. Do you need it rewritten? Like I did, I did that for them. I was trying to build experience that I could put on a resume, you know? And so then when we moved back to Florida, I got a job working for a financial company, but doing marketing. And so that really was that kind of launched me into like what I would describe as like a career because I got the experience of being like in that field of marketing. Stephen, talk to me about your financial models. Your guys' parents, did they have more traditional careers than it sounds like you were building at the time or was kind of what you were going through similar to what you saw your parents doing? I mean, I'll talk about my parents. So my parents, neither one got a bachelor's degree. So I was like kind of already on a different path in terms of education wise. Same for me. But my my parents both, I guess, are like standard middle class American parents. My mom, you know, for her whole career has been an optician. So she fits people for glasses and stuff in like a optical practice. And my dad has owned a window treatment business for like 
30 plus between years. 30 and 40 years now, a really long time. And yeah, so he's like a small business person. I definitely had like a like an entrepreneurial role model in my dad. And I saw my mom, you know, just working like a stable job More for her whole career. And so that was kind of my, I guess, background and upbringing on that. And then Lauren had like a little bit different experience, I guess. Yeah, my dad did not graduate high school. And my mom, she graduated high school, but she's never went to college. So I was the first I think I'm the first person in my family to actually go to college as well to graduate. Yeah, I definitely had like a, to use your word, tumultuous upbringing. Financially, my dad was kind of a serial entrepreneurial when entrepreneur when he wasn't working in kind of like grocery delivery type business. And my mom has been more in like a customer service role most of her life and has dabbled in real estate here and there. But yeah, for me, like I definitely was seeking stability. And like my goal in getting my degree was be efficient and to like capitalize on some of my natural inclination and like skill set and get to work so that I had an income and so that I could be self-sufficient and and independent and rely on myself for that. I'm listening to both of your stories and it really sounds a lot in a sense like my wife's because her parents were immigrants. They didn't have American college degrees her generation were the first college graduates, just like you, you guys are. There was a huge push from their parents to be a doctor or a lawyer, or a dentist or a pharmacist or enter corporate America per se. Steven, did you guys have those type of pressures? I mean, were your parents like, oh, you you're the first ones to go to college. You really have to have to enter one of these white collar jobs. I think but one thing that both of us had in common is that our parents And our families in general told us, you guys are really, you know, each respectively, like you're really smart and you can do anything that you want to do. And so you should shoot for the stars and, and, you know, go high. So I think we had a lot of like positive encouragement and I never felt personally that it was in any way, like you have to do this or else I consider you a failure. It was really just positive, encouraging thinking and, and just setting you up, you know, when you're like a teenager or whatever whatever adults tell you like the real world is like you have a tendency to just believe because you don't know and so I think both of us were kind of set up for like oh you know you're exceptional and you can do what you want to do and so we we, yeah so (laughs) I think we both had like a pretty high amount of confidence going into like college and then and coming out of college and I think that that was a plus like like we had this optimism and I don't know if it was correct or incorrect, but we had it anyway. And I I think it, it probably helped. Yeah. I would say like our, like every cover letter that I wrote was like, I am the fit for this job. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I would say our parents are very encouraging. Now your parents were very excited about you doing your PhD program. And I will say that there was some, I wouldn't say pushback (laughs) necessarily, but they were like, are you sure you want to stop with that? My dad for sure, my dad for sure wanted me to finish my PhD and I think was a little disappointed when I quit the program, but I think I'd like to think ultimately that he's proud of me. So (laughs) I love the way you guys describe your family's faith in you. You said it was kind of quote unquote, very millennial, this idea of, okay, they think we're exceptional. So we'll do something great, whatever it is. And I'm thinking of me who I'm very generation X. And for us, we defined our exceptionality by the jobs we got in a sense. It was, 
that's an exceptional job. So if you can get that job or you can do be in that profession, you must be an exceptional person. It reminds me of what I think the major topic of this podcast is, is this idea of whether our jobs can and should be disposable. Stephen, I'm going to quote you from one of your blog posts here. Let's talk about 2015. You write in a blog post, I was a public school teacher. Lauren was doing marketing for a small financial company. We were both getting a little bored with working eight plus hours a day and making $40,000 a year. How did you fix that? So you're, you're in 2015. You've got these jobs. You've obviously been instilled in your family that you are exceptional people, right? You can do whatever you want in the world. How did you take care of that problem in 2015? Well, it's interesting because the buildup to that is ultimately what took care of it. So I think a lot of times when people get out of college and they get their first job, they think, hey, this job is cool. I'm enjoying it. And like, I thought the same thing. I enjoyed being a high school teacher. But I think a lot of people don't think ahead a little bit and think, hey, like if I want an escape route to this, this job one day, I need to prepare for that. And so we were always kind of thinking in terms of let's save as much money as we can so we can have the freedom to do what we want if our minds change at any point. So I think we both kind of liked our jobs mostly. And then over time, they got a little boring. So in 2015, our combined net worth was somewhere around like $150,000 at that time. And so we felt like we had this financial cushion because our annual spending at that time was only around $22,000 a year combined for both of us. So we felt like, wow, we have like years and years of expenses in the bank. So we're free. Like if, if we wanted to take some time off, we could. And we ended up postponing our honeymoon after our wedding in 2014 and deciding on going to Hawaii for our honeymoon instead in 2015 for six months. So we took a six month honeymoon and kind of just hung out on the big island of Hawaii, rented a little apartment beside across the street from the beach there. And yeah, just had a good time. And and we worked like a little bit remotely while we were there, maybe like 10 hours a week, something like that. And for the most part, we just spent our days like exploring Hawaii and it was a lot of fun. So Lauren, I think a big part of this question is how you got to a net worth of $150,000 at such a young age. But before we even talk about that, we were talking about your family and them believing in you. And when Stephen said, okay, I'm not going to do this PhD program, maybe there was a little bit of a, are you sure you want to do this? So how did they react when you said, oh, we're going to go take a six month vacation for a honeymoon? Was it any stronger of a reaction than when you kind of left the career path they thought you were going to take before? I don't. I don't remember any pushback, honestly. Like, do you remember anyone? I I remember. I like, I feel like I, to- I I wasn't asking. So it was like a little different. Like I wasn't, <laughs> I just told them like, this is what I'm doing. And so I think that they know like we're the kind of people, if we're telling you like, it's kind of like, it's done now. Like, I don't know. I felt like it wasn't really, there wasn't a conversation around it. There, there was a conversation around you switching programs. I feel like asking advice, but like, this wasn't really like a, I wasn't seeking counsel. I was like, we're moving to Hawaii. That's true. We definitely like just announced (laughs) it as a thing. I, I, I would say that honestly, I, I don't remember exactly how each person, like my friends and family really reacted to that. Cause it was a while back now, but I can say this. Since then, you know, we've kind of like tried to 
spread the gospel of this idea that like, Hey, if you save up money, you can, you can do crazy stuff like that. And just, uh, if you get bored with work, take six months off and ship off to an Island. It's fine. And the pushback that we get now and have gotten for years when we tell people that abstractly is yeah, but you're going to have this resume gap and you're never going to be employable again. And you're ruining your career and you're giving up your best, like leveling up years. And all it, all these things are centered around how in your twenties, you're supposed to be focused on your career and you're supposed to be leveling up in life and taking this time off is going to ruin all of that for you. And so I have to think that, you know, with good intentions, like people in our families must have at least in the back of their mind been thinking like, Ooh, this could be a big mistake, but we didn't get anyone who told us, no, you can't do that. I, everyone kind of went along yeah, with it. I don't remember any like significant pushback. Lauren, let's talk about this idea though. People are talking about these are your leveling up years, but you guys were fairly young and you had a net worth of $150,000. Clearly you had figured a way to level up pretty quickly at a young age. How did you get to that place? Was it just saving? Was it investing? Did you guys have side hustles? Were you just pretty much saving your income from your jobs? How did you get to that level? Our saving rate then was probably rather high, well, like 70%. It was probably between 80. 50 and 75, depending on oh, that, that's a lot at yeah. that time. And you know, we were both working full time. Stephen was making 40 well, 42, I guess, by the end, after you got your degree and got the raise for having a master's, I was making a little less during that time period, slightly. And then we also did photography as a side hustle, like we would go shoot weddings on the weekends, portraits, we were still very connected to, you know, people at our alma mater, um, doing graduation portraits, that sort of thing. We had a bunch of random side hustles. Yeah. yeah. There, was a, there was a lot of random side hustles. We did a lot of credit card churning at that time. And like at that, at that moment, you know, because our salaries were low, we were very open to like any money making opportunities. We're like, okay, what can we do now? Credit card churning, got it. Open a new bank account, get $200. Perfect. Like, let's do it. The time investment was like definitely worth it to us. And obviously we'd find ways to like make it as efficient as possible. But I think we were just very open to the more money we can make right now, the more we can save and invest it early on. And that is better. That'll grow. It has a longer time to grow for us. And so I think that was the motivation. We had learned about this concept of financial independence. And if you you know have 25 times your annual expenses invested, it could pay you to live. Like this whole concept we had kind of figured out just recently. And so we were tracking our net worth every month. And so that was a very exciting, we kind of gamified that for ourselves where like every month we're like, how much should we save this month? All right, perfect. Like let's keep, let's, let's set some goals and let's see it. So we had a spreadsheet and we would track every month and that was very encouraging. And then as we got closer to Hawaii, we also had a calendar countdown of each day we're going to be closer to Hawaii. We would cross it off. <laughs> So, Stephen, we're going to talk more specifically about why you should make your job disposable. But first and foremost, as I hear you guys talking about what you did and some of the things you accomplished, credit card churning, side hustling, saving 50 to 75 percent. I wonder, is this something that's available to everybody? I mean, I love this idea that our job should be disposable. But what about like minimum wage workers? What about people who we're not lucky enough to not have any debt coming out of college. I mean, is this something we can all kind of reach for? 
I definitely don't think that everyone's story will turn out exactly the same if they do the same things starting from wherever they start from, right? Because everyone starts from a different place. So you're going to have different outcomes because of that. But the key component, like the most important thing that we actively did was keeping our household expenses as low as we reasonably could. So as I mentioned before, like during these couple of years, like right after that PhD program and before Hawaii, we kept our our combined expenses around $22,000 per year for two people, you know, including like renting an apartment and all that. In today's dollars, like if the inflation adjusts, it's probably in like the 25 to 27K range off the top of my head. That would be my guess. I haven't done the math, but it's probably pretty close to that. If you think about that, right? You just have to do the math for yourself on what that means for the outcomes that you can achieve. So like, let's say that that a couple can get by on $25,000 a year. Well, you know, if combined, they only make $50,000 a year, like maybe they are both like close to like minimum wage earners. And then they got to pay a little bit of taxes on that. Not too much when you're in the lower income brackets. You know, you're not going to be saving as rapidly as we were. But there's definitely still room to save. Now, if you add on some extra burdens to those people, like, hey, they live in a super high cost city or, hey, like they already have a kid or two, you know, things start to get a lot harder. Um, So that's where at some point, depending on, you know, your starting place, what things you have to deal with or maybe student loan debt or something like that, you have to focus on earning more money. But I would say like for most people, maybe most people in our audience or in our own peer group, it is pretty easy. I mean, if you think about it, we, we didn't have exceptionally high paying jobs. Like we were making about 40K a year during those years. And so I would say that's a perfectly respectable income. It's nowhere near minimum wage. But I think a lot of people believe that you have to make six figures in, able to, in order to be able to save 50 to 75% of your income. And that part's just not true. The other part about student loan debt or like having some kind of debt coming out of college is if you think about the two-year period where we saved $100,000 on basically 40 k a year salaries, if we came out of, let's say, college in like the worst, worst case scenario, like far above average debt, like let's say we had a combined $100,000 worth of student loan debt coming out of college, by just working those same 40 k a year jobs and doing the exact same thing we did, we could have saved $100,000 in those two years still and just wiped out our student loans. And sure, we would have had a net worth of zero instead of you know plus 100 from where we were. But uh, that's pretty encouraging to a lot of people, I think. I think when you tell people like, hey, if you have 100K in student loans and you work as a high school teacher, you can eliminate your loans in two years. That still sounds pretty good. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. But I don't think everyone will have the same outcome as us. But I think everyone has an opportunity to, with low spending, you know, zoom ahead of where they were expecting to be. We are talking to Lauren and Stephen Keys. They are the creators of the Trip of a Lifestyle blog and platform. And we are discussing whether our jobs should be disposable. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. 
But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Over 30,000 investors across the U.S. are discovering a new way to build wealth. Equity Multiple brings you access to a diverse wealth generation ecosystem with cash flowing real estate. Starting with just $5,000, you can allocate to professionally manage commercial real estate assets. Sign up in minutes, find investments that fit your strategy, and invest your desired amount through a streamlined, secured platform. Since 2015, Equity Multiple has delivered over $170 million in distributions to investors and 17.4% aggregate net return. Join the thousands of investors nationwide who are building stronger, more diversified portfolios through real estate investing. Sign up at equitymultiple.com forward slash earn and receive an enhanced return on your first investments. All investments involve risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. Again, that is equitymultiple.com forward slash earn. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Lauren and Stephen. They are the creators of the Trip of the Lifestyle blog and platform, which delivers a unique take on personal finance and adventure that can help you get rich, work less, and travel whenever you want. Stephen, let's talk about the blog post about your job being disposable. You say that there are three separate employment superpowers. The first is the ability to leave a job that no longer suits you. Let me twist that around on you. Do you have to love your job? I mean, a lot of us go to work to make money and that's okay. And people do that for decades and that allows them to do what else they want to do in their life. Why do you need that superpower? I mean, isn't it fine to just be okay with work? Oh, I agree a hundred percent that you do not have to love your job. And, and I think that like imposing that requirement on yourself is is almost ridiculous. Uh, I'd say people who truly love their job every day are very, very lucky. Uh, and that's cool. It's a huge bonus if you do. But I think most people deep down, you know, if you said, hey, if your job paid you zero dollars, would you still do it? The answer is probably not. Yes, most of the time, or at least it's I would do it, you know, one tenth or one twentieth as much as I currently do it. And that's okay. That's fine. Our approach has been to encourage people, go get a full-time job, max out the amount of money that you can make at that job, doing something that you don't hate. I mean, you shouldn't do something that you hate doing every day. And then realize that if you ever want to have the freedom to leave it, you need to focus on your spending, keeping that much lower than what you make, 
And if you do that, that's an automatic formula for freedom. So I would say you don't have to love your job because you can escape almost any like middle-class level job pretty easily through frugality. And then you can do whatever it is you love, whether that's a job or not. So that that's kind of our approach to it, I think. Lauren, the second superpower is a stronger position to negotiate anything. Can you give us some examples in your life about how you were able to negotiate because you felt like you were starting from a strong financial position? Yeah. So like the perfect example of that for us is right when we were about to go to Hawaii, you know, Stephen had said we, you know, we had about $150,000 saved. Going to Hawaii was a decision we'd already made. And so I went to my employer and I told them, hey, like I'm going to Hawaii. I like working here. I like the tasks that I have. A lot of it can be done remotely and I'd be happy to continue working remotely. I told them this like six months out. Like I gave them a long lead time because it's a small business and I didn't want to leave them high and dry. So I told them way in advance. And I told them, I'm happy to train someone else that you're going to bring in to replace me. That's fine too. Like I totally get it. Or I could keep doing work for you. Like that is great. Like I would love to, you know, Hawaii is a really big time difference, but I'll make it work. And so I wasn't asking. I was telling them I was in a position to inform them rather than ask of them a permission or, or, you know, can we please do, you know, it was more of a like, Hey, I'm, I'm here to talk business. And so I think that made it a lot easier to have that, you know, negotiating tactic to be able to have that money in the bank makes you a little more courageous. You can say, this is, these are my terms and you don't have to walk any of that back if you don't want to. I ended up doing the same thing years later when we took seven months to go to all the national parks in the U.S. Exact same scenario, really. I went to my boss at the time and just said, hey, my wife and I really want to do this trip. We're going to take seven months and go to all these parks. I can quit my job if that's, you know, how we want to handle this. That's fine. Or I figured I'd offer to you, like, I can keep some of the parts of that job that can be done remotely, do them for you. And maybe we can even talk about me coming back afterward you know, what do you think? And it's kind of like, that leaves him in a position where it's like, okay, I don't think I'm going to get out of this conversation, keeping my full-time employee and telling him no, because it doesn't sound like that was one of the options that I was given. And so you can only really do that if you're like, well, I guess either really, really good at bluffing, or (laughs) if you have the money in the bank to do that. And it works. You have to be willing to walk away. Like you have to have that as your backup. Like you can't say, I'm doing do this or else I'm leaving if you're not willing to leave. And but having the money means that you can, right? Like that's kind of our our take on that. Yeah. And he ended up giving me exactly what I wanted. So it worked out really well. It doesn't always work. My employer at that time when we were going on our trip, we, you know, I brought them the same idea. Hey, I'm gonna be going on a trip and I can do work for you. And, you know, the we just didn't come to terms with like a reasonable price and like amount of work that they wanted done for the right price point that I was willing to work. And so that relationship, you know, we didn't choose to carry on, but like, you know, I was in a position where that didn't quite matter as much at that time. They kind of lowballed her and yeah. she said no, which, which is another, <laughs> well, an- you know, I wasn't going to, that's another, <laughs> that, that's another freedom that you have though. Is, yeah. is I you didn't get have to, re- to take the deal. Right. <laughs> and Stephen, I think this all kind of relates to that last superpower you discuss in the blog post. It's the courage to grow and take risks kind of reminds me that 
this blog post you guys wrote is not only meant for people who want to leave their jobs, but this can kind of be helpful for people who are also super passionate about their jobs, right? Yes. Yeah, that's a big part of our blog too, is that this whole financial independence and like saving half or more of your income and all that. I think a lot of people get on a one track mind that it's all about save as much as possible, as fast as possible, then retire and never work again. And we've like pretty much fully rejected that idea. I mean, that's fine. If that's exactly what you want to do, you should do that. But for us, it made a lot more sense that, you know, you should enjoy your working years and you should, you know, take some time off if you want to, or take an opportunity, you know, like in that third superpower to uh, try something completely new, take a risk and start a business if you want to try try to do some things to level up your income that you might have been afraid to do if you didn't have the money in the bank. There's so many different forms of freedom that having a large savings buffer and low annual expenses gives you. It's not just about retiring early and, and never working again. And Lauren, I want to be clear about this. When you guys decided to take six months in Hawaii, you had $150,000 saved up, but you didn't necessarily consider yourself per se financially independent at that point, did you? Oh, absolutely not. No. I mean, one of the things that like was happening, we were having like a bit of a enlightenment period. Like at that time we were, you know, working a lot less, I would say probably what, 10 hours a week where I was doing stuff for my previous employer. Stephen was doing some tutoring. We were doing some photography and it was literally just enough to cover our bills there, our expenses in Hawaii, in Hawaii. So we had the savings buffer that we weren't having to touch or tap into at all. It was just continuing to like, you know, grow the parts that were invested in for our day to day was taken care of by this little minimal work. Right. And it was like a really bizarre situation to be in. Cause like, obviously that amount of money, like wasn't enough to retire on at that time. But the idea that like, I could just work 10 hours a week for the rest of my life and cover my expenses. Like I'm living in Hawaii. Like it's one of the more expensive places to live according to most people. And like, here we are not really having to work full-time at all to make it work. Right. So that was like a weird problem, I guess, to face. Like, so do we like go, I guess we go back to work. Cause like, that's not enough money. And like, I still feel like I can contribute to society and like, I'm not ready to like be on a beach all the time. And it was just a weird, it was a weird thought process where like, we could really do whatever we wanted. And that actually did lead to Stephen being able to kind of take advantage of that third superpower because that's when you started doing tutoring full-time as a business. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when you have that savings buffer, what you're comfortable doing, what you're willing to, to risk. And, and also when you have low expenses, knowing that you don't really, and this was part of my thought process too, with reading Lauren Weber's book and cheap, we trust, if your expenses are low enough, you don't actually need to make that much money to cover those expenses, right? If your expenses are low, then the amount you need to earn also can be low. And so you can just get by, you don't have to work as hard. And so that was kind of like a interesting thing we figured out in Hawaii. And we ended up not doing that. Right. We, no, no, no. We like decided like, we're going to go hard. Like we're good. We got our, we recharged for six months. We're ready to like hit the workforce again. But like, I specifically remember setting a goal for myself when we came back from Hawaii, I want to make at least 50 K. Like I'm not going below that this time around. Like I know like the skills that I've earned in the last, you know, two and a half years or whatever, I'm worth that. And like that also, it took me a little bit longer to find a job, but I found one that did pay that. So I think, you know, again, having that savings buffer allowed me to 
job seek a little longer to find that position, but. Yeah, she rejected a couple of job offers that were around the same as her old pay because she was trying to level up and, and she wouldn't have been able to do that if we didn't have that money in the bank. But yeah, I mean, as she was saying, during Hawaii, we definitely had some thoughts of what a lot of people are calling like coast fi. Like, hey, you have a hundred or $200,000 or whatever it is in the bank. You could just let that ride in the stock market for your whole life and then just work like this much to just pay your very low expenses. And it's practically like you're already retired, even though you're nowhere near financial independence. So we thought about that. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable path if someone wants to do that. We ended up- It was like a mini experiment of that kind (laughs) of Hawaiian ones, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We ended up saying like, yeah, we would rather just have the the full amount saved. And so we went back to working full time, but it's definitely something we thought about. It's more choice, right? Like the more you have saved, the more options you have available to you. And so I think for us, we were like, I would just like- to know that, you know, worst case scenario, we're still like pretty all right. Like it's not just a few years, it's several years of savings and, you know, we can do a lot more. Lauren, I'm interested in something you just said. You said, I wanted to level up and make more than 50,000 a year. Were you willing to do things you didn't necessarily love to get there? Because a lot of what I hear you guys saying is you've chosen in many ways lifestyle. I mean, the name of your your brand is trip of a lifestyle. Certainly lifestyle is important to you, but now you're saying, but the money also was important. Were you willing to sacrifice a little to get to that point? I would say that the answer to that is yes. I don't know that I felt that I was necessarily having to do that, but when your career is only going to be eight years until you hit your fire number, like it definitely encourages you a little more. Like, I don't have to work this job forever. Like that is kind of to Steven's point about your job being disposable. If you, if you just want the salary, if you want to earn a hundred thousand dollars a year and you work that job for two years to like bank as much of that as possible, even if it's going to lead to burnout, even if it's, you know, taxing, it's only, it only has to be for however long you want to work it. And, you know, you want to save that much. So I think that was kind of more my perspective is I'll take this job. It's, it earned, I earned more at it and it was more taxing. I would say like it was a, again, a small business. So I think when you're in a small business, you wear a lot of hats and you, a lot is asked of you. And so I, I do, I did end up feeling a little burned out after that job as well, after a few years working there. But yeah, I mean, the pay was definitely worth it. It was just like, for how long is more the question I feel like. And when you have low expenses and you know, you can get to fire pretty quickly, I feel like oh, well, it doesn't actually have to be that long. Like it's not a 30-year career being miserable. It's a three-year, you know, sprint. I think we both had the perspective after Hawaii of like whatever new job we get, it could be for a year or two if we want it to be. And then we could do another Hawaii Hawaii redo thing, right? Uh, So I think both of us were like so recharged from the Hawaii thing that we were both in the mindset of let's get out there and make some money. Yeah, And I mean, I'll give you the perfect example. I remember that right after Hawaii, I applied for a job with an insurance company, which is something that I had no interest in really whatsoever. But I had like the mathematical background for the the job requirements. And I was just like, hey, this job says that it pays well. Let's just throw a resume out there and see if I get it. I could do this. I can do anything for a year or two, you know, if it, if it pays well. I ended up not getting the job, but I was totally willing to give it a shot because it paid well. So I would say yes. And it's exactly the reason that Lauren said it's the ratio of how much input you have to do at a job 
to get the output of years and years of living expenses saved. If, if you're starting to touch like 80% savings rate, which we ended up getting up to, I mean, you're banking four years of living expenses for every one year you work. It's like the ratio is just out of whack. It's totally worth it. So Lauren, I want to ask a philosophical question, and this is based on my own experience. It took me years after having enough money to start worrying less about having enough money. And the reason why I think it's an interesting philosophical question is you guys very early in your career were able to say, okay, 150,000 is enough for me to take six months off. Then you come back and you say, okay, I'm going to put a few more years in. Maybe I'll grind a little to make more so that I can get to that fire number. Do you think having the money in the bank is enough to get you to stop worrying about having enough money, so to speak? I think it definitely requires like a mental choice. I honestly think it's a it's going to be different for every person because I think for me the biggest factor that like proved to me that we will be fine is knowing that our living expenses are low. Sometimes that knowledge is like not enough for people. There's still like an emotional component. And I would say that that isn't really the case for me. I don't feel, I don't feel like I've had to worry about money since we, since I got my first like full-time job out of college. I feel like I have been, I was saving money waiting tables. So I felt confident in my ability to take care of myself and I, in the fact that like we had the savings that I saw growing every month, I don't know, the numbers kind of proved it to me more than like any emotional like response I could have to it. So I, I do think that that is a struggle a lot of people have though, is like knowing when they have enough and then like trusting that process that it is in fact enough. And, you know, when, when you're able to set your bills to auto pay. And, you know, you can, you don't have to think anymore about making sure that there's enough money in each account that has never been part of my money journey since being like in a, like a proper adult out of college, you know? And so I think that was not something I had to let go because I didn't ever have that experience. But I think for a lot of people they do, especially if you are like counting, that's actually one of the things in Lauren Weber's books that I found interesting is a lot of people do get in this habit of budgeting and counting every cent and accounting for every cent. And I think that leads to it being harder to let go of that. Even when the math says that you have enough, it can be harder to let go of that process. Almost, this is kind of like a weird analogy, but like for smokers, sometimes it's just the, the force of habit of like bringing their hand to their mouth. You know, it's almost like that. I feel like people, it's harder to let go of something that you've been doing for years and years and that have you know, proven to work for you. So I think it's harder to let go of those things, but for me, it wasn't personally. Stephen, I want to pivot from talking about having enough to make work disposable to why we do that. What is our why of creating this net worth and, and building this financial structure? Let's start with your brand. Why did you call it trip of a lifestyle? Basically, we have taken these these trips throughout our years. You know, it, it started actually with one right after college. We took 45 days and we drove all the way to Alaska from Florida and back. And 
it was like leaving for that long. And that, that trip was not fancy. We were like sleeping in the back of a Honda Civic half the time, but just leaving home and having like no responsibilities and complete freedom to choose what you do every day was this complete shift. So whereas when, when most people go on a trip, it feels like a vacation, right? Like you go for a week and you know, like, this is my break from work or whatever. That first trip for us felt like a complete change in our lifestyle. Like, whoa, like this is our life now. And then when we came home, it was like, whoa, like back to reality. This is crazy. And then we did the same thing in Hawaii and we did the same thing in the national parks for six and seven months, respectively. And each time it felt like that became our life. It wasn't just a trip, right? So that's kind of part of it. The other thing is that people always say, you know, when we take these trips, we meet people and and they're, you know, like, oh, that's so cool. You're on this trip or whatever. Wow. Like this must be the trip of a lifetime for you. Like you, this is a once in a lifetime thing. And it's so cool that you're doing it while you're young and while you still can and all that. And for us, it's just funny to hear that because we never felt that was really the case. We felt like these trips that we take, these breaks that we take from work and all that, are just like a repeatable part of our lifestyle that we can do whenever we want because the math works out because our expenses are low and our savings are high. And so it's just like a a reversal of the traditional thinking on, on what like a vacation is. The vacation for us is just like whenever we feel like not working, we're not working and, and that's it. So I don't know. That Yeah, that's kind of the etymology there, I guess. Lauren... This makes me wonder about retirement. I mean, is retirement even the goal? And if so, how would you define that nowadays? Um, well, I haven't had a job since I quit the company ahead of our, the company I was working for ahead of our national park trip when we couldn't agree on like a price point and if they wanted to keep me around and all that. So since like the end of 2018 is when I left there. And so I haven't, I've done some freelance projects doing like some social media work for people here or there. I've I've been working on our blog. Obviously, we launched our blog in May of 2019. And so for me, I feel very retired, especially now that we live at the beach. Like it's very, it's very bizarre kind of for me. I I still feel like I can't believe that we're at this level, like we're we're doing very little like proper work, so to speak, but we you know, can go outside and walk on the beach every day and, you know, go in the van and take a trip, you know, for a few weeks at a time, if we want somewhere else, you know, the freedom is like here. So I don't feel like I need anything else. Like I don't feel like I am still aspiring to any particular like financial goal in, as I was before, you know, before we were tracking our net worth every month. And like, now we're like, oh, I guess this is a, technically the day that we usually do this, but does it really matter at this? Like, do we really even care what this says? So it's definitely a different position to be in one that I still find not real. Like it's just totally surreal to be here at this point at, you know, 32 years old. I just didn't think that it was not that I didn't think it was going to happen because like it was proven to me in Hawaii and like through all these other things that like what we were doing was working and making sense. The math made sense, but just that it would like actually happen. And I don't, I feel like saying easy is, is bad, but it did. It felt like I didn't, I didn't try as hard as I thought 
maybe I would have to, or that like, it would require this immense amount of effort or sacrifice on my part. I never felt like I was sacrificing or giving anything up to like get to this point. And so it's weird to like wake up and be here without feeling like there's some tipping of the scale in some other direction or something. I don't know. (laughs) Steven, are you employed at the moment? So I still do a little freelance work for the tutoring company that was my last full-time job. So I quit that full-time job beginning of 2020. And then to be honest, I did kind of the same thing that, that we've always done as we leave jobs, which was, I said, Hey, I won't be working full-time here anymore. If you'd like, we maybe can work something else out, but if not, that's cool too. And then they wanted to keep me, you know, I'd like to think that's because I'm a valuable employee or whatever. And you also like the work. I feel like that's, and and that's the thing is I was, I was open to it because as long as I'm not having to work 40 hours a week and sit in meetings, that's like huge and sit in meetings, which is huge, which that was definitely part of the deal. No meetings of any kind. Um, I, I was perfectly willing to keep doing some work for, for pay. And what happened was I ended up getting down to a very small amount of work in terms of hours and I, I don't even live in the same city as the company anymore. We moved. So it's like mostly remote. I drive in about once a month. And now I make a way higher rate of pay per hour. And I only do the parts of the job that I like, which in particular is teaching students. So I'll, I'll like drive in to give like a live auditorium like exam review for, you know, dozens or hundreds or whatever of students at a time. And that's the main part of my job now. And I don't do all the other stuff. So I get the best part, the most pay per hour for it. And I work very, very little in terms of hours per week. So I feel super retired. And at the same time, I'm actually still pulling in significantly more money than we need to live per year. So we're not actually drawing down on our fire portfolio at all, which is just kind of crazy. Like it's, it's just, that is that, that superpower though, right? That last superpower of like the courage to just throw an idea out there in the world and see if it worked. And and that's what happened. I was just like, I won't be working here full-time anymore. Oh, could you please stay and still do the most important parts of your job? And we'll pay you a lot. Okay. I, I guess so. Sure. Sounds fine. And it's really, it's not even close to what working a full-time job was. It it has like none of the drawbacks and all like more benefits. So it's kind of crazy. I don't think it works that way for everyone every time. Like you do have to save the money so that you can be willing to just leave if you, you have an employer who you're not interested in working for anymore. But man, for me, it worked out really, really well. Lauren, simple yes or no answer. Could you ever imagine yourself being full-time employed again? No, I mean, it would have to like, I think what would cause that to happen would be like the economy would have to be like so terrible that that's not even like that getting a job isn't the worst part, right? Like (laughs) that's worth mentioning though, right? I think that's one of the criticisms of fire all the time. It's like, what are you going to do if stocks drop by 90% and everything's on fire? (laughs) It's like, (laughs) well, everything's on fire. Like I have to put those fires out first. (laughs) Well, but not only that, but just like, dude, like I'm 31, I'll just get a job. You know, like that's the, I'm not any worse off than everyone else because I saved a bunch of money. So yeah, like 
that would, yeah, that would be the trigger, right? It would be like panic mode. The world is on fire. Okay, let's get a job done. That's like the worst thing. But like right now, if you were still holding this position that you have, like, I don't think we would need one because it covers our expenses. So even if I know is the answer for me. Yeah, no, no, no is the answer for me too. Although I guess, I mean, never say never. Like I could see us starting a business. Like if there was some Okay, so like that's a little different. That isn't, that to me is not the same as like going back to work full-time for an employer, right? Like someone else. But like we have talked many times, I mean, throughout our lives about, oh, we could start like, I don't know, a coffee shop or a game store, like something, you know, we, and we still have these discussions. So that's definitely, that is on the table. And I guess that would be work, but it'd be something that I was choosing. So I don't feel like it would be work. Well, Stephen and Lauren, I want to thank you for coming on the show. As I listen to you talk about your lives and your careers, it makes me realize that your generation in some sense really, I think, gets it right in the sense that you put your life first and your career second. And I think it took me into my 40s when I had lots and lots of money saved away to do that. And I think your generation is figuring this out at a much younger age and therefore probably enjoying your 20s and 30s much more than certainly I did. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and if people want to reach out to you, how can they? So first, Stephen, what is up next in your life? I just sent in my passport for renewal because it was about to expire. So I would like to think that what's up next is a little bit of international travel. Got our eyes on some possible, possible trips, nothing in stone to Colombia and Australia. So we'll see what's up with that. And Lauren, if people want to get in touch with you or ask you questions, what's the easiest way for them to do that? We're on you know, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. YouTube, Trippable Lifestyle, or TOA Lifestyle on Twitter. You can also email us and go to our website, trippablelifestyle.com. Our email address is there. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Lauren and Stephen from Trip of a Lifestyle. That's a wrap. Cool. Very, very cool. So, um, yeah, you guys had it together. I mean, I, I see, you know, I know a number of people kind of your of your kind of generation doing it very similarly. Um, and I think you guys have it right. I mean, I think you guys are preparing for the ups and downs of what's what's coming, but have found a way to take much more control of your lives at a much younger age. I mean, I think of Josh and Ali Lupo or Cody Berman or like a, kind of all people I think are somewhat your contemporaries who kind of are doing the same things and, and finding ways to make it work um, so that they can do the kind of things that they want to do. For sure. Yeah, I, I mean... I think people forget about like the reverse risk of like everyone thinks about what happens if your plan doesn't work out and the market crashes, but nobody ever thinks about the reverse risk of like, what happens if optimism wins, things go really well, and you spend all your years in an office because you're afraid that was going to happen. So we, we try to take like this optimistic view and just say, hey, if things don't work out, then okay, like, I guess we have to go back to work then. <laughs> And I, I feel like you see now too um, the next generation, Gen Z, coming up and uh, setting even more work boundaries, 
um, which is interesting. You know, millennials tend to be more uh, kind of people pleasers. And so it's hard um, for them in an office, especially with more remote work to like not be always on. And um, I think Gen Z, you see a lot more of them setting hard stops and um, work-life boundaries. And so I'm hopeful that like that continue, that trend continues and that, you know, especially now with the like silver lining of of COVID, I would say is probably the, the shift in the workforce of people being able to figure out remote work finally, like in making it yeah, actually sure. a thing. And so I think, you know, as long as people are setting the work-life boundary, then remote work is a really great opportunity for people to have the kind of life that maybe they have wanted and that's easier to envision because you know they're not having to go into work every you know they're not commuting they're not like wasting so much time um that people tend to waste when they have to go into an office i hope it won't make people complacent about saving though that's yeah. true i do yeah. worry that like if they have the work life balance they won't be as uh, motivated maybe to save money and be as like, you know, if you don't hate your job, are you as excited about early retirement? And I don't know that you have to be, but like the encouragement to save might not be as strong, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think too, it depends on, you know, it's one thing, if you are really super passionate about your job, I think savings can be a little bit less, right? So you can save 10% or 15% and max out your 401k and do like the basics without getting like to the 50% level, right? But if you're if you're super passionate about your job, if you're not super passionate about your job, then yeah, it, it you really have to be carefully fiscally. And I think that's kind of what we're learning is that um we've got to get rid of the the black and white, right? We've got to get rid of you either have to grind it out and kill yourself and make tons and tons of money or you need to sit around and do nothing. No, it's somewhere in the middle, right? We need to find jobs that allow us to live our lives. That doesn't mean not working at all, but it means finding a work life that supports the rest of our life in a fiscally responsible way. Because as we all know, the money you put away in your 20s can serve you for the rest of your life if you do it correctly. And that's not to be lost, right? Yeah. And, you know, to your point, I I still feel like, um, like, I'm glad that our, you know, one, one of the people cited in that article about um, making your job disposable is our friend um, who worked she literally is doing the job she has dreamed about her whole life. She is a veterinarian, um, but she was working at um, a veterinary school and the bureaucracy of it is someone leaves, they don't hire a replacement. Someone yeah. leaves, they don't hire a replacement. It just gets worse and worse. Yeah. And it gets worse and worse. And so even though she was doing her dream job and she loved it and it was great, it was it became a toxic work environment. And so yeah. I think that a lot of people, when they love their job, they don't think about the rainy day that is possible. Not that it has to come um, or that's guaranteed to come, but just like, what if, you know, the company sells or you get a new manager or your new coworkers suck or like, there's so many different things that can turn a job that you love into one that you regretfully hit snooze on like you in the morning. Like it's, it's definitely, it can change pretty quickly. And I think that having that savings means like for our friend, she started her own um, practice. Uh, right. So she's, she actually travels. She's an um, anesthesiologist. So she travels and goes to oh, different wow. hospitals and does the anesthesia for them on their surgery days. And so that was something that, you know, she was empowered to do because, you know, she had this high income, she could save some money. And so 
I don't know that that would be possible if she was like in a situation living paycheck to paycheck, you know? And so I think that that there's encouragement there for at any earning level to be saving for those yeah. kinds of situations. I, I definitely connect with that idea that your dream job can change. Cause you know, my post-financial independence dream job was, is being a hospice physician. I was a contractor for a company, very similar to Steven working five to 10 hours a week, making decent money, but, but not stressful, not taxing. I could do it kind of in my own way, in my own hours, but over the three or four years I've been doing just that, you know, things changed radically up to the point where my company was bought by another company and they decided not to use contractors anymore. Right. So even when you do find that kind of dream situation, it doesn't necessarily life changes and it doesn't necessarily, Mm -hmm. whenever, whenever someone else is paying you for better, for worse, there's always the risk that it's going to change, but for sure. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is a yoga class? Get out of here. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.